Welcome back to another episode of the Ex-Experts Podcast, where we give you all kinds of information and tips on everything divorce. Why? We've lived it, so we get it. We're Jessica and TH. Today, we'd like to welcome Michael Gould from Rotenberg Merrill. He's the Director of Litigation Support and Valuation Services. But more importantly, he was my forensic accountant during my divorce and continues to help me figure out and answer all of my silly questions um, all these years after. So welcome, Mike, to the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the word forensic, which is scary because you see that on CSI and every show on every channel about their crime scenes and the forensics. So how does forensic come into the world of divorce and what does it actually mean to be a forensic accountant? Well, forensic accountant, actually I like to use that word CSI, we're the CSIs of, uh, of accounting, right? And, um, but uh, and forensic accountants, do a number of different things outside of the divorce field. They may get involved in commercial litigation, government litigation when it comes to fraud or potential defalcations and thefts and things of that nature. But in the context of a divorce, a forensic accountant could get involved in any number of any number of things of investigating. Basically, a forensic accountant investigates things, whereas opposed to a financial analyst who may would you help you manage your assets or help you manage your uh, investments, et cetera. A forensic account investigates things. So what are they investigating in a divorce? They investigate possibly uh, a claim by one spouse that a one of the, the other spouse dissipated assets somehow, whether it be an affair or what, what have you, or they may be hiding assets. It might be an asset in a foreign bank account or they uh, it's missing. They think they made millions of dollars and all of a sudden we have no money in the bank and now we're getting a divorce. Was there some divorce planning going on? Um, they may also um, uh, investigate lifestyle because when it comes to support, whether it be spousal support, child support, a lot of it hinges on what was the marital lifestyle at the time. Uh, so they'll investigate all of these things and um, I guess that's the best way I can define the word forensic for you, that we're really more of an investigative kind of person. So Mike, how does someone know if they're in a situation where it's necessary to have a forensic accountant? I did not have one in my first divorce. And I, I mean, I was pretty involved you know, with the money and where it was going and that kind of a thing. Um, but I wonder, if someone isn't even sure and they get a forensic account and it turns out they don't find anything, then it's like a little bit of a waste of money in that regard. So what's like the parameters for whether or not someone should get a forensic accountant? Well, first of all, it's never really a waste of money because even if you hire a forensic accountant to, uh, because you feel your spouse dissipated assets or is hiding assets, I mean, forensic accountant doesn't find anything or it comes back to the conclusion that look, it is what it is. What, what's there is what's there. It wasn't hiding anything. At least it gives you peace of mind that um, you're making a reasonable deal and uh, arrangement, and that everything has been fair and right. what have you. So I, I don't. Would, I wouldn't say the hiring of forensic accounts a, a waste of money. And a lot of times in a divorce. Um, and by the way, and how do we go? How do we go about finding out whether assets were dissipated or right. were moved offshore? 
will actually go back and, and especially in these days of uh, where all records are digitized, we can actually go back a number of years and subpoena records, bank records, and we basically, money is traceable. I mean, money leaves a path. So you can go back and look at what income was earned during a marriage and trace deposits and what happened to that money. Uh, it, it's a costly process sometimes because it involves looking at a lot of transactions, um, a lot of, depending on the marriage, maybe a lot of bank accounts, a lot of credit. Yeah, it takes a long time also. It, it can, it's, it's, it can be a, a lengthy and expensive process if it goes that route. And, but in a divorce, you have two kinds, basically two kinds of divorces, really, uh, or the, the parties to divorce. Sometimes the, I'll call them equity, not equity spouse, because we've been involved in, in, uh, in divorces where the wife was the breadwinner uh, okay. in the family and, and, and the husband was not. And there have been a number of those cases. So uh, sometimes the, the, the non-equity spouse, the non-large earner in, in the case, right. is really financially illiterate or it had nothing to do with the, with the, with the finances. They had no idea. I mean, uh, my wife now, I, 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 make an, I make a point of telling her where everything is, just in case God better get hit by a Mack truck or something, or my motorcycle goes off the road or something like that. <laughs> And uh, so she, she knows what's going on, but generally she's, she's a counselor. She, she's not a financially oriented type of person. So you get marriages where there is one spouse is clueless as to the finances and you have other marriages where, the, where both spouses are very financially uh, capable and knowledgeable and know exactly what's going on. So what goes into it exactly from someone on our side of things, right? Someone's getting divorced, they're thinking about getting divorced, they want to kind of get all their ducks in a row, they're thinking, I would like to know where all the money is, I want to make sure, you know, that, that nothing has disappeared at some point in the marriage. What do people have to do to kind of prepare themselves for the process? Well, you you. Both of you have gone through the process at least once. <laughs> well, I haven't, I haven't gone through a forensic accounting process. So I'm okay, saying, like, well, what, what would I do to have to prepare myself if that was a road I wanted to take? Well, first of all, you start with when you get involved in a divorce, whether it be in New York and New Jersey, or in most states, in all states, actually, there is, in New Jersey, is called a, a CIS, a case information statement. In New York, it's called a net worth statement. Right. And those, and those forms that you fill out basically are two things. They are, what are your assets and liabilities? What do you believe, you as one party believe they are? The other party is filling it out independently. And there's also an income statement. What do you, what do you earn? What do you think you earn? <laughs> and what are your expenses, if you know? And that kind of forces you into becoming knowledgeable about the family finances. And so we, when sometimes when, when we get involved in divorce, we always ask for the case information statements or net worth statements from both parties. Right. We kind of compare them to, <laughs> to see whether there's a, uh, a, a big disparity between the two. And How often do you see something where like, if the wife is the non-moneyed spouse and then you look at the financial statements from both of them and she writes that the husband makes, you know, $2 million a year and the husband writes that he makes a million dollars a year. like. How often do you see a giant disparity between what the non-moneyed person is telling you about the other person's income versus what they're saying? 
Um, the majority of the time. <laughs> um, like major disparity? Yes. Yeah. The, uh, because, people are just idiots. I mean, uh, we have a. Uh, well, don't be so mean, Jessica. <laughs> No, they're, no they're, I mean for the for the moneyed person to try to make it like they make so much less. Right. Well, and let let well, I have a question after. So let my I had my answer. Okay. So yeah, very often uh, I wouldn't say the majority of time, but very often there is a big disparity because when the non-equity spouse or non-money spouse, call it, really is not knowledgeable about what's going on, they haven't. They have an idea of what of what the family lives on. So if there, if it's been, finances were never an issue in a marriage and a non-moneyed spouse has credit cards that she uh, he or she uses at will and without any restrictions, um, they, may, they may just have the idea that they make all kinds of money. Um, okay. They right. may not have even okay. looked at a tax return. The tax return may be shoved under the non-moneyed uh, spouse knows every year, she just sign here and they sign the second page where there's no numbers on it. <laughs> well, they sign the right. e-file authorization form which has no money, numbers on it. And uh, they don't know what they're signing. So they really have no idea. I think it would be helpful for there to be like a quick learning on the basic tax return. I mean, mine were not basic, but really so you understand what each line means so that if you look at it you do know what you're looking at mm -hmm. i definitely just signed my name even though i was employed and i worked and i and i understood the semantics of it all but i didn't get in depth on you know i wasn't looking so closely at capital gains and that was even before you know i got divorced and it became way more complicated um but i would also ask what about cash I mean, I would think that if someone was planning for their divorce, that they may put stuff away in cash um, so that you, I mean, how can you find cash? Well, had to uh, come from somewhere, no? <laughs> Could have been said, spent. Money leaves a trail. However, so if you have um, uh, parties that were, uh, a party, the moneyed spouse who's in a business where he just gets a W-2. It's not a cash business. He's employed and he may be working for a big, you know, private equity firm and he gets, uh, he gets checks and he's got to deposit those checks somewhere. And all of that money <clears throat> from these firms and the employers are reported. So it's very simple to uh, trace the money coming in and look to see where the money, it's got to go into a bank account and it's got to tie into the tax forms that were reported. So once that's done, then when you look at the bank statements to see where the money when it left the bank account, where did it go? So if he's accumulating cash on his side, that's a very easy, that's the easiest scenario to trace mm -hmm. cash. Very often when you have a business, like right now we have a business, we have a, uh, a divorce, two doctors. <laughs> um, uh, and there is a certain amount of cash that comes in to those practices. And if the, it's very difficult. It's probably the toughest thing is when you have parties that are in a, a cash business, there's a retail business, a bar, a restaurant, um, and things of that nature where people right. are paying cash. It is very difficult to be able to trace that cash. But one of the questions we ask the non-money spouse in those situations is, 
Well, when you go out for dinner, when you went out for dinner, when you were an intact family, you were getting along, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when you went out to dinner, how did you pay for that dinner? Was it paid in cash? Was it paid with a credit card? Uh, mm -hmm. When you went to uh, Macy's or Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom's, wherever you shop for clothes, did you give them a credit card or did you pay for cash, pay in cash? So how- Why does that matter? Like, so what, what is like, what are you figuring out from that? For anyone who's listening to this and trying to figure out their own spending habits, what, what does that tell you? Well, it's actually pretty simple because let's assume that clothing will make the, the easiest thing to trace. Let's say that all your clothing is purchased in cash, but we look at the bank statements and we don't see any checks going out to go into cash. So how did the person get the green cash that they use to pay for the clothes or they pay for the restaurants? It had to be from, well, had to be from, most likely it came from unreported income because if it didn't come out of the bank accounts from earnings that were reported, where else did it come from? Right, right. Unreported. Did it come from savings? Possibly, but not likely. So is a lot of the times that you're finding these hidden funds places is that it's mostly coming from unreported income or mostly that people are trying to funnel it one place or another in the hopes that that other spouse won't ever find it? Okay, well, uh, <laughs> it just so happened that we just wrapped up another case where uh, the, uh, the non-moneyed spouse, this was actually a very short-term marriage and a lot of gray divorce, we call gray divorces these days, by the way, not you know, a lot of the, most of the divorces we're handling now, really the majority are gray divorces. People have been married sometimes 30, 40 years or older people who are married. This particular couple was a short-term marriage, huh. but the, uh, the uh, moneyed spouse in this case was in his late 70s and uh, had a business for 40 years and 50 years actually <laughs> he was never went to college he started the business right out of high school and, and was still in business and it was a very successful business and the spouse of the short-term marriage thought was of the opinion he made millions of dollars so we got involved and we said is this not burning millions of dollars and they and she claimed Oh, he's got all this cash. You know, he's always had cash. Well, the kind of business he was in, I really don't want to give you, you know, sure, yeah. information about it for, for confidentiality purposes. But in this particular business, the business needed to have cash on hand for the type of uh, uh, business they were in in terms of doing buying. But it turns out all their sales were totally recorded, totally reported and totally uh, reported to the IRS and in their books and records. It was on the buying side where they actually needed cash because they did all their buying in cash. So the spouse thought, so all this cash laying around when she came to the office, she said, oh, this guy's, you know, got hundreds of hundreds of thousands of unreported income. Loaded. Exist. <laughs> and turns out no. Yeah. So, and plus what made this particular case very confusing and complicated was the parties they they moved money around like like there was no tomorrow. They had famous had 20, 30 bank accounts. They kept opening and closing accounts. It was it was crazy. That's so suspicious, it, isn't it? it? It it created a suspicion that there was um, something funny going on. Right. So we really had to spend the time. We ended up spending a lot of time and cost a lot of fees to to show everybody that 
no, these people were just a little bit nuts. <laughs> and they just were, didn't trust banks. They did not invest, they did not invest in marketable securities or stock market or anything. They just had cash money in savings accounts, BDs, and it went from one wow. bank to another. It was wow. crazy. And uh, at the end of the day, it was all there. <laughs> so once you, go ahead, TH. No, no, go ahead. I was gonna say, we have this question, you know, wondering whether or not, once you kind of know what the situation is financially, do you then help with the negotiation of the alimony, child support payments, or is your role more doing the research to find the funds, you know, or to find whether or not there are additional funds? Actually, I, I like to think that the real value we bring to the table is helping settle the case. And uh, because there are a number of ways to divide up assets, there are a number, of, and there are tax implications to how you divide up assets. Uh, so I think that's where the real value is to our services. Um, Tracing money and, and doing asset tracing, things like that. You know, we have bookkeepers that do that for us. Right. But the real um, work done in terms of fashioning a settlement and, and putting together, excuse me, scenario analyses as to how best to do it. That's that's where our, we have value added. And now with the new tax law, prior to 2019, alimony was deductible and child support was not deductible to the payer and, and, and uh, was, uh, we've discovered it's not retroactive yeah right well i uh, called mike right away i emailed uh, him right not away even not retroactive. <laughs> right it like doesn't change yeah well, well you can go for a modification you modify if you modify an old agreement you'll uh, you know you can get a stream not but much I, time I, left i would on suggest the you agreement. do that <laughs> there's not yeah. much time left it's not yeah. it's not it would be whatever. Yeah. So, um, and so now everything, nothing's deductible. The animal is not deductible to the payer. And it's not taxable to the payee. So how do you take advantage where we used to have the IRS paying some of this money because we spread the money out amongst lower tax bracket um, mm -hmm. parties, parties. So now what we do is sometimes there may be an ability to, um, move some equi some assets, some like retirement assets, which will be taxable to whoever takes it out, maybe give the, the non-moneyed spouse more of the retirement assets. So mm -hmm. they take that the retirement assets that taxable to the to the non-money spouse at lower tax brackets. Is a danger in that? Oh, yeah. Lawyers hate when I say that because lawyers will tell you that and it's true. Alimony, there's a contingency in there. Uh, it stops on remarriage or death. And if equal distribution, it is what it is. But uh, so the, how do you account for the, the risk that a, a stream of alimony payments that's going to last five, 10 years is actually going to get paid over those five, 10 years? So something mm -hmm. that contingency might come into play, which might count, terminate the alimony. Child support. Are there, are there still pay. terms on alimony? For cohabitation and stuff like that, also, or they get rid of that with the tax. Uh, no, there's still there's still <laughs> contingencies. The cohabitation uh, issue um, really needs to be written into the agreement. Uh, death or remarriage is kind of automatic. Mm -hmm. um, I think cohabitation and attorneys might correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's probably you need to separate that. And that, that's actually an interesting topic these days because we see a lot of 
a number, you know, very often uh, divorces of uh, uh, heterosexual couples where one party actually was gay. And that's one of the reasons for the divorce. Right. So the cohabitation clause becomes an interesting uh, yeah. <laughs> issue right. to talk about. Next podcast, we're going to dig deeper into right. Seriously, no, but that actually is a really good conversation to have about kind of what the contingencies are and making sure that people are really prepared to understand their situation and what it means years down the line. Yeah. So, right. I think the end game is so important. I mean, you know, everybody has a different scenario, but I wasn't necessarily thinking of those contingencies right. when I was getting a divorce. Yeah. And I know that Jessica's without revealing details was less limiting for her personal life. And I just, you know, I think we all just get very caught up. So Jessica fortunately was able to kind of step back and see it. For me, I was, you know, you know, we were like scrambling yep. to get this done for so many years, but um, it's important to think about where you see yourself and are you willing to, you know, abide by these restrictions for so many years and kind of limit your own personal life. Anyway, that's another, well, that's another. Well, actually, the, the point really, the important point is that very much like when we talk about business valuations and, and, and other situations, the facts and circumstances are unique to each situation. And we were involved in a divorce where the moneyed spouse, the husband, in this particular case, was an alcoholic. And uh, he had been to rehab a number of times. He was still drinking. The uh, wife was concerned. He just was not going to live. So she negotiated for a lump sum buyout of the Elmo rather than worry about him paying for 10, 15. Wow, right, so take it all you can. It's a facts and circumstances driven, you know, situation. Yeah. Uh, and, every, and every divorce is a little bit different. It's got some little twists and turns. That yeah. was really smart. Totally and ages awesome. now, this, this divorce we just settled. Uh, the husband just turned 80 years old. Right. And he was still working. But now the New, in New Jersey, anyway, there's a presumption that you can retire. So um, that was another issue that entered into uh, a potential uh, lump sum buy of alimony. It was a very short-term marriage, but so uh, the age of the age, the age and health of the parties is very important. Yeah. Well, this is all, I feel like we probably have so many more questions, but this has all been such great information. For anybody out there listening who has specific questions for you with regards to their own situation, what would be the best way for people to find you? Uh, well, they can certainly call me on the phone. I answer my own phone. Uh, we don't charge for phone calls. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my, my direct telephone line in my office is 201 four nine zero two zero seven seven or they can email me and be and uh and th will know knows that i am very responsive that way they can email me at m gould m g o u l d uh at r as in robert m as in mary s as in sam b as in boy g as in good.com rmsbg.com and we're going to have all of that contact information on our site as well and like, just a quick question though mike is it um would for you to be working with someone do they have to live in new jersey is this a specific state by state situation if someone lived in california would they be able to call you or would that not be relevant yes they can actually we actually have been testified all over the country and okay. clients all over the country we have a, happen to have an office in the Helmsley building in new york as well 
which I go to on occasion. Uh, main office in Saddlebrook, New Jersey, but uh, I've testified in Florida and have clients all over the place, globally, actually. <laughs> okay, all right, well, good, that's good to know. So for anybody out there, um, Mike is someone that you can get in touch with. <clears throat> so we really appreciate you bringing all this information to the ex-experts community. It's such an important conversation to have for people to know what their options are and really be on top of everything with their own situation and their own personal finances when going through this project, pro this process. It's as arduous, you know, anyway. So to just be able to have that kind of peace of mind of knowing that your finances are being handled the right way is imperative for any divorce. For everyone out there listening, if you know anyone at all that would benefit from what we talked about today, please share this episode and everything ex-experts. Be sure and click to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please follow us on social media at ex-experts, that's E-X-E-X-P-E-R-T-S on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.